0: Beep boop. Beep boop. Now that I have explained how Discord work, works to my very special guest today, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we can do the introduction. Welcome to Tengri episode 14. I'm your host, Iggy, and with me today, a very special guest. It's a very special episode and a very special day. With me today is Conor Rebush of uh, the Heavy Hands and Bloody Elbow and all that, all uh, the. All the that oh, bunch good. of other stuff that he does, yeah. uh, the, the depressed us, yeah, uh-huh.
1: yeah. It's all <laughs> the depressed us, really. When you come right down to it,
0: I mean, it's MMA. Yeah. How else are you gonna feel? <laughs> so, true. if if you think if you think you may find something interesting in there, as opposed mm-hmm. to finding all the interesting stuff on our on the glorious fight sites, you may just maybe kind of give it a, a cursory listen and just maybe some 15 minutes and turn it off please can i get a crumb of listenership that's all i want just uh, the man the man asked politely so just (laughs) oblige him everyone please well thank you Uh,
1: for having me i'm very happy to be here to
0: i'm uh, very happy to discuss
1: a topic sorry i'm interrupting already to discuss a topic near and dear to my heart okay you host now
0: yeah that that's why that's why i didn't ask to be on the heavy hands podcast because that's just enemy territory the rest yeah. of the gang agreed to come on and just kind of begged Connor on their knees to just have them on the podcast. And then Connor just uh, treacherously e- utilized his manipulative editing to sound to make him sound to make himself sound as a genius and add and throw and all the rest of the boys like complete nimrods. That's, so, that's so, actually why the episode
1: is always late. It's because of all the manipulative editing I do.
0: Yeah, just splicing together individual sentences from Uh just completely unconnected statements. Uh Uh-huh. You may
1: have caught caught a couple little uh, telltale signs when um, last time Ben Cohn was on, and he said right at the start, I am
0: gay. And I love Uh being cocks. (laughs) Exactly like that uh, Putin commercial or YouTube video, whatever, the remix. Uh-huh. That uh, that that made him crack down <laughs> on all the minorities in Russia. <laughs> very very, very uh, self-assured man, definitely mm-hmm. very secure in his masculinity and all that stuff.
1: <laughs> uh huh.
0: So he's always
1: showing that daughter of his on social media. Like, look, uh, I, I can do it.
0: Have I you s- have you seen the, docum- the uh, documentary about his uh, about his personal palace? that is built. It's so boring. I was, I was honestly incredibly let down by it because it's uh, kind of it. There is always this uh, assumption that Putin is this this mega genius, this mastermind, this mm. uh, unknowable entity from the cold, frigid deadlands of Russia. But in fact, it's just one of your just your regular run-of-the-mill petty tyrant. And he has uh, his entire palace decorated in incredibly tasteless, just gold and chandeliers. Mm-hmm. So boring. I'm so let down.
1: Yeah, he couldn't get away with it all if he wasn't so hot.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you're gonna be totalitarian, at least at least be classy about it. I don't know. Yeah, mm.
1: uh, I think that's <laughs> a uh, that's a, that's a that's a hard uh, a hard two things to bring together.
0: <laughs> kind of Classic totalitarianism. Is I mean, yeah. Sure, sure, but uh, some dictators managed. I mean, I can't provide any examples off the top of my head, but I'm sure there were some. some uh, Gaddafi was like pretty. That. Uh,
1: Gaddafi was pretty
0: styling. I mean, sure, yeah, I guess. You know. Yeah. Uh, either way, <laughs> uh, to 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 actually start with the show. Uh, Today's uh, a, a very special topic uh, and um, something that our listeners at the Fight Sites always wanted to know more about. And, uh, Connor, why do you hate Peter Yan so much? Hmm. Um... Dun, 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 dun. That's me mimicking the intro theme to your show. That's, that was the cold open. <laughs>
1: That's good. We had Kyle on. He pretends. He listens. He fakes the the song. Now I'm on your show. You're faking my stupid song. That's good. Um, I should have a song. Everyone should have a song to, oh, to yeah. at least have someone make fun of it. You should do I, what I did and have a song where, um, like, everyone hates it for the first like five years of the show, and then eventually you just break them, and now the only comments you get are people who like the song.
0: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Something, That's something, fun. something incredibly aggravating and bassy. Uh, in in a foreign language that english speakers hate uh-huh. just to, to to weed out all the racists right off the bat that uh
1: that con band they're uh, they're achieving some international
0: mm-hmm.
1: popularity you know that's just a suggestion uh why do i hate
0: pyotr mm-hmm. Jan? um that was me, that that wasn't actually a serious question you' you are not entitled uh, well, you are not being forced to answer it, okay, uh, and our listeners need, are not entitled to your answer. We I need just, an
1: additional ninety minutes uh for our recording session, I think for me to get through the whole list so
0: I mean the reasons are simple, the reasons are always simple because I understand Russian and I actually can understand what he's saying in his interviews that's that's the entire reason right there. <laughs> just if i provided a translation for all the shit he says i, I don't oh. think he would have any fans left but on the other hand colby covington has plenty of fans so yeah. it yeah. might not might not work either way
1: yeah yeah there's always going to be a, a, a reactionary element that decides they like someone just because other people like it whereas you know unlike smart people like me who decide they dislike someone because other people like it
0: I mean that's uh, the, scr- the that's the precursor to the Sriram school of disliking and liking fighters, based purely yeah, in right. <laughs> based purely on how many people like them yeah, in the Sriram first and place. Are both insufferable contrarians.
1: <laughs> so uh, anyway,
0: yeah, uh, we'll get event- we'll get to your trans- transgressions against the Petyan, uh I don't know groupies. Uh, Somewhere down the line. Uh, So um, the reason why I invited Connor for this discussion, not only to just bully him and just kind of uh, 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 enforce my agenda that uh, the fight side is inherently superior to heavy hands Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because there's more of us and we're Mm -hmm. smarter and more handsomer and younger Mm. is is that uh, I've received a, a Discord I've received a patron question on our Discord, which, you can, which the listeners can join for as little as five bucks per month and uh, interact with us, interact with the staff and uh, other like-minded people, or other like-minded psychos. And uh, the question was thus. It was a question from Discord patron Smash, uh, S-M-E-S-H. It's kind of a f- phonetic spelling of how Habib Nurmagomedov pronounces the word smash.
1: Mm-hmm. Which racist. is yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. At uh, you, you may find him at Smash Jets Only on uh, Twitter and say, it's, tell him his name is racist. Mm-hmm. Tell him you're gonna smash him for using, for making fun of how Habib says things. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the question. The question itself. Fighter personality in its relation to their fighting style. Correlation slash causation. That was the crux of the question. That was the gist of it. And the question itself was uh, phrased thusly. How much does a person's personality affect their fighting style? And are there any clear examples of someone fighting entirely against who they are? Uh, You guys touched on it in the panels, but I'd love to hear uh, a more in-depth look. Uh, The panels in question were... The toughness panels, the toughness, the panels dedicated to defining toughness in MMA, because it's a very specific sort of attribute that is sometimes uh, used, mis- isn't used appropriately when discussing fighters. But either way, those interested, those who are interested, and Connor, you may go back and listen to, to that uh, after we finish. But um, yeah, so since uh, much of Connor's and Phil's work at the Heavy Hands has to do with talking about fighters as personalities first, and uh, that doesn't mean that they just disc- talk about them as one would talk about, I don't know, Instagram influencers. They also discuss technical, <laughs> technical aspects of their fighting styles and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, so Connor, please, your theory, which you state uh, pretty often on your show, is that. Um, pretty, your theory pretty much is that every fighter is secretly driven by insecurity, please elaborate on that are you accusing me of repeating myself to men? <laughs> definitely, that's what I'm doing I would never. I, this is, this, this is w- what the whole po- podcast is going to be this is just me yeah. uh, airing all my grievances that I've, uh, that uh-huh. I've been piling <laughs> up and up and up over the years that I've been listening to your show
1: Let it be a sort of object lesson for the listener and how podcasters are also driven by
0: insecurities. Um, Definitely. That's another point that we're going to touch upon later.
1: (laughs) I mean, that does kind of get to the basis of my idea, which is obviously armchair psychology and always open for uh, misinterpretation and also sort of impossible to tell what is misinterpretation sometimes. Um, But I think the general idea is that fighting is an inherently human activity. Uh, and I don't mean like, uh, the way Dana White says it, like fighting's
0: in our DNA. Uh, two but guys, rather, saw other two guys fighting and then they decide to wish to fight. Uh, Grab some that. monsters and sit down in
1: look. lug. <laughs> rather that, <coughs> um, fighting is a, a stressful and emotional experience. um, and when you put people in stressful circumstances, you start to see, you know, it, it's, it's reductive, but who they really are, right? You start to see an expression um, that is not determined by them consciously, uh, that comes out of, uh, as R. Scott Backer might say, the darkness that comes before our thoughts, right? There's uh, a place inside all of us that, that is our personality that we can't not without tremendous effort, consciously interact with. Um, And fighting brings that out. Like, you're in there, you're stressed, there's tons of pressure, you're literally being hit in the face. Um, There's very little time uh, for the vast majority of fighters to exercise anything resembling conscious thought, uh, rational thought. It is purely expressive, like art. You know, it's expressive. It comes from someplace inside. And um, I tend to believe that uh, everyone's very insecure, uh, in one way or another, and that those insecurities—they—they um, they sort of—they're the things that motivate your reasoning, the stuff that underlies the logic you use in day-to-day life. So even when you think you're being rational, you are being influenced by uh, your inner character. And uh, yeah, it just seems kind of obvious to me um, that fighting. Works the same way that, however you feel about yourself, whatever you're worried about, et etc., cetera, et cetera, that is going to be expressed in some way in how you engage in a, you know, in violence.
0: Well, that's a very English-majory way of putting it. Mm. <laughs> Big-brainy, big big-thinky way.
1: <laughs> My specialty.
0: Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm a linguist by trade, so. <laughs> I'm not far off from that. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the perennial rivalry between uh, language majors and linguists. Mm. Well, I'm actually <laughs> a, failed, uh, a failed history major, so... <laughs> <laughs> even worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I pretty much uh, uh, agree with all that. And uh, the, it, it's something I... It's a phrase that I've coined Uh for one of my articles and one I, I'm un, 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 unreasonably proud of is that fighting is a microcosm of the human condition yeah. and, and uh, pretty much that's why we see fighters uh, make the decisions they make in the cage or in the ring and uh, a lot of their behavior in the cage or in the ring is kind of either an extension or a reflection of who they are in real life besides fighting yeah, And so it's kind of inescapable, in a sense.
1: Even, yeah, I totally agree.
0: Yeah, even the most, uh, the most well-rounded, the most masterful uh, fighter that can do it all perfectly, with perfect form, always perfect decision-making, uh, et cetera, et cetera. There is, you you're never, I mean, first of all, fighters like this pretty much don't exist, save for, I don't know, select few over the centuries and maybe like boxing or Muay Thai, but either way uh, you are still going to see glimpses of who they are as people in fights, especially against uh, their peers who are equally as skilled, equally as uh, developed and masterful in their own style. Mm -hmm. And, And it's never going to be the same style for each person. You may see certain copycats or like, uh, weird, I don't know, kind of duplicates over the years, fighters who just just so happened to fight in a fashion that is similar to the fighter that came before them, but it's still going to be a, their own personal spin. It may, be in, it may be witnessed in very negligible details that you have to look specifically for, but uh, oftentimes it's way more glaring than that. It's uh, way more it's obvious than that.
1: Well, excuse me. Even if you're talking about um, like proteges replicating the styles of the of the fighters that came before them, you know, even that you could probably reduce to a level of uh, why did these two personalities mesh so well? Why did one become a mentor to the other? There's got to be, uh, in most cases, some kind of connection um, or chemistry. Exactly. Yeah, chemistry for sure.
0: Yeah, and uh, that same. You may also see this in, uh, like, uh, I don't know, lineages of fighters that uh, have trained other, the same coach. Let's say, let's take, for example, the Kronk gym uh, with uh, Emmanuel Stewart, the, uh, the legendary boxing coach, or, or someone like Eddie Fudge, someone like uh, Cast- Castamato, and uh, I said it like Tomato. Cass Diamato, how, how do you pronounce it?
1: Say it for I me. Have, I have always just said D'Amato. it might be Diamato. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah, I know the, the Tyson guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, the weirdo, the weird Tyson guy that had, had him do stuff like, I don't know, like, uh, what did he actually hypnotize him? Has that ever been confirmed by any sources? I don't know. But, I mean, this is the sort of weird um,
1: surrogate father-son relationship they had is not an uncommon kind of relationship for um, fighters and coaches. I think also connected to this idea that fighting is inherently personal. Um, the kind of mentorship you find in fighting is connected to, you know, Ty- Tyson. Um, even if you want to say just the, the, the technique uh, and the discipline that uh, D'Amato gave him, if you want to attribute so much of his greatness to that, you still have to come back to the idea that uh, he would not have absorbed, might not have absorbed that information so completely if uh, D'Amato wasn't, uh, if he didn't have daddy issues. You know what I mean? Yeah. It all comes back to the shit we're afraid
0: <laughs> of. <laughs> uh, the, oh, God. The old, the old protagonist with daddy issues. Just the type that's dime a dozen in the world, and in media as well. Well, what was it? Who said it? Was it um,
1: God? I'm I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm like, is it Jack Kerouac or Mark Twain? Before I guess anymore, some famous author once said that. Uh, smart guy,
0: story, a, sm- a smart guy, a smart, a English speaking guy wrote some something about.
1: English MF said that uh, every story, uh, every male story, is about uh, a father or a son trying to find his father.
0: Yeah. And, uh, like, before we get, go way off the rails, because oh, there's man. a whole bunch of stuff you can, uh, bring up about Kaz D'Amato and, uh, how he approached training his fighters, because there's lots of very neat, interesting stuff, sometimes, sometimes even really dark stuff that uh, has mm-hmm. to do with D'Amato and the way he brought up his fighters. But either way, the point has been made, I suppose, to a very sufficient degree. You get the gist. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I think we need to establish first what do we mean. What, what exactly do we do when we try to evaluate a fighter from both a technical and a uh, from a, both a technical standpoint and as a personality? How do you analyze a fighter's behavior in the first place? Because there's um, there's currently a very prevalent idea uh, um, amongst uh, fight communities and fight fans that uh, people who rely on stats to kind of evaluate what a fighter is and what their game is about is is all about and uh, I think you and I can agree that it's kind of a flawed approach to to take because stats without context are kind of useless. Absolutely. Stats
1: are very, I I do frequently find them useful but they're supplemental. Um What's the, uh, what's the quote? Statistics are like a... Uh... Oh, I, I can't remember it.
0: Um, the only good stat guy, in my opinion, is Count von Count from Sesame Street. That's my opinion about stats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I learned so much about fighting from the Count.
1: <laughs> um, I suppose you... Uh, if the question is, like, where do you start to evaluate fighters on an armchair psychological level, um, you can look at positive evidence and negative evidence. You can look at what they do. You know, like uh, the, the general way I try to frame it is, um, if given total freedom, what do they do? Uh, if left to their own devices. So if you give a fighter a really, really passive opponent who is not doing a whole lot to befuddle them, um, or somebody that they can just roll over with some athletic advantage or whatever, you are going to see you're going to learn a lot about what they want to do intrinsically in a fight uh, when everything's going their way. And then the flip side of that is um, what makes fighters visibly uncomfortable. And and as much as it is supposition and guesswork, you can see um, in body language signs of discomfort. You can see when fighters flinch. You can see when fighters uh, wince. And sort of half turn away from their opponents, um, yeah. And you can also just look at it from a sporting perspective, like what what are they doing when things are going well, when they're winning the fight, and what are they doing when they're losing the fight, and then try to draw some uh, conclusions from that that correlation.
0: I mean, it's kind of a "what are you in the dark" type situation. Absolutely,
1: yeah. Especially yeah, is like being drunk.
0: It's like it, it like it.
1: Being in a fight is like being drunk. It brings out the best and worst aspects of your personality in, in very sharp terms.
0: Yeah. So basically, uh, an analyst, a fight analyst's job is to kind of utilize a eye test. Basically, that's your chief tool when evaluating fighters. You can't use uh, stats without context. You can't use, uh, well, you may rely on certain proven things that are considered to be fighting fundamentals. Things like mm-hmm. stunts, things like uh, proper, u- uh, proper utilization of uh, your jab, all that kind of stuff, sure. and you kind of supplement that with, well, taking a good look at how a fighter implements those tools. And uh, it's uh, an inherently subjective thing. It's you can't be entirely objective about it at all. It's it's pretty much impossible. Yeah. I mean. With enough data and enough uh, information over time, we may, we may, and it's not a 100% sure thing, but you could money ball fighting at a certain point, but it's not going to be within our lifetimes, I think. Hmm. And, and, uh, because I mean math solves everything, I guess, but uh, with the amount of math we have right now and with, with the variables that we have right now, we can't do that at all, and so you have you have to kind of rely it's kind of uh, it's interesting how in fighting, which is uh, a very as you described a very artful thing it's a very human thing uh, it's a thing that's uh, you can never be 100% sure about. And analysts are also have to work with that as well because we do not possess, we're not clairvoyant and we, we can't, and especially with things like psychology, you can't look into the other person's mind and kind of for sure say that this is what he's thinking right now, this is what she is thinking right now in this exact moment when trying to do, I don't know, when trying to perform a, a certain technique or another. And so uh, I think uh, now that we've established how, we, uh, how what we mean when we say evaluating fighters as personalities, uh, do you have any examples, any very illustrative examples of someone who, uh, who may sort of, I don't know, prove your hypotheses? Sure. Well, it's always, I, I do think like... Um
1: as much as i talk about these uh these insecurities that we all have um it is as you said it's very subjective so like trying to definitively reduce someone's style down to ah you know this is the like i have a like a uh, a dnd like character sheet with all these possible uh you know foibles on it I, i can't be like ah it's impatience it's um low self-esteem it's whatever you can't you can't reduce (laughs) it to that but you definitely can get a sort of blurry picture of um of what drives a fighter by looking at their style so i guess i can start there's an example you've suggested here in your exhaustive notes but
0: uh
1: one that that would have come to me already i think because i just wrote a piece on him we've got leon edwards
0: oh yeah i've read that piece that was uh, that was a very interesting read indeed. Thank you very
1: much. It's the only reason I brought it up, actually. Thank God you read it. Um, <laughs> I would have left the show right then.
0: If you I mean, know. it's it's a good thing that it's not actually Ed and Trum, who, who have invited you to talk about Leon Edwards, because it, it's just going to be them being super sad the <laughs> whole <all laughs> way through. Oh, Leon, <laughs> why yeah. are you like this? So, yeah, but that's the
1: thing. You watch Leon Edwards' fight and you have to say, why is he like this? He is like something. There is something going on that, that makes him different from so many other fighters. Um, I guessed in my piece, which was called Edwards versus Diaz, when fighting safe isn't safe. I guessed in my piece um, that the sort of overabundance of caution with which Edwards fights... <sighs> Is, I mean, first of all, there's a sort of snake eating its own tail thing. Uh, there always is with um, the whatever might be the so-called root causes and the expression of those of those roots. Like, it, it, does his technique make him uncomfortable, or is he uncomfortable and therefore hasn't perfected this aspect of his technique? But I guessed that part of Leon's cautiousness stems from. A sort of perfectionism mm. that he, he has an idea of what a proper fight uh, looks like, how, a, how a, fight, a well-fought contest should look.
0: I would and, also add uh, a, mm-hmm. a certain, uh, I think it's a very important uh, thing to note, is that Leon Edwards approaches it more like a contest, more like a sporting match rather than a fight. Yes, absolutely.
1: He tries,
0: he kind of tries to turn a fight into a contest of skill as opposed to, you know, a fight. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. He, he, uh, like, like they said about Bernard Hopkins, he, he's an expert at taking the fight out of the fight, um, which I guess almost seems like it flies in the face of my initial premise that it's a, like an inherently emotional thing, but some people when put under tremendous emotional stress do become very cold and rational. Um, I
0: mean, uh, I, I suppose a more skillful, a more credentialed example would be someone like Georges St. Pierre.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I absolutely. mean, not to, that is uh, of course not to shit <laughs> on Leon Edwards, but just no, or or uh,
1: Bernard Hopkins or Floyd Mayweather. There's a lot more of these guys in boxing, I think, because
0: uh, I, mean, I think
1: there's a, a deeper well of of like systemic technique to draw from to sort of get
0: you to that point. Boxing is kind of just. A more well, a more well-established institution, and more yes. historically deep, and th- that's why naturally you're going to see more types like, m- more yes. competitors like this. There are very clear
1: archetypes um, with like long-established roots, and as much as I have tried to stretch those into MMA, there are a lot of people who sort of defy whatever box you try to fit them in. Um, and so, yeah, for Leon, it's like uh, it's it's uh, my guess, and it's always a guess is a sort of, um, perfectionism, which uh, to me explains why, um, y- you know, when hitting Nate Diaz, for example, he hurt Nate Diaz so badly, so many times.
0: Oh yeah. He was very close to finishing. Nate Diaz t- yes, multiple times during the fight. Multiple times.
1: And, um, what did Nate do when he was hurt? He did what he was doing the entire fight, which was to taunt. And I think in Leon Edwards mind, he sees this as like he he he's like he's like jesus in the desert you know he's like ah <laughs> a temptation i see this man wants me to break out of my perfect fight that's why he's taunting me there's something in leon edwards that prevents him from like examining that premise and asking what if he's bluffing and i could get in the hell out of here with very little difficulty if i pressed the issue right now that thought doesn't enter leon edwards mind so as cool and rational as he seems there is still some sort of insecurity preventing him from changing the fundamental way that he fights. He, uh, he can, he's a, a rare fighter who can just hurt an opponent over and over and over and see that as like a challenge to the way he should be fighting. No, no, I'm going to stick to doing it the right way and then get myself in trouble in the last minute.
0: Yeah. And uh, one thing I wish to add to that, because I, Overall, I think I agree, but also you need to take into account the question of coaching. How is he being coached? Uh, How has he been coached for the entirety of his career? What are the coaches putting into his mind and how are they working with him? Because uh, I mean, naturally you aren't going to know for sure what the gym situation is like uh, for Leon Edwards, but, and you wouldn't know what uh, the coaches know, but there may be a certain approach, or at least or, or kind of a doctrine of fighting that uh, the coaches may have in their minds, and consider this the correct way to fight. And Leon Edwards, as a pupil, as a dutiful, disciplined pupil, feels a certain loyalty to that concept, and a a breakaway from that mold feels like a certain failure to implement what the coaches taught him. And it's kind of, I I think I
1: think that that is kind of how I feel about the situation. And it's who knows? Like there's always the possibility too that this is there that they're right. His coaches that this is the best um, fighting version of Leon Edwards you can get. Right? Like people aren't all that changeable. Um. So, so so as much as it it might it might come down to the coaches in part, it's also not so easy to say. Oh, we'll just stick him with this coach who teaches this thing well, and he'll change.
0: Yeah. It's so. a a common sentiment expressed by fight fans, uh, fight fans sometimes, especially when after a certain fighter is met with failure, is that, oh, he just has to train with this guy. Right. And this guy is going to teach him uh, to fight in this specific way that is going to be, fit him better and make him fight better. And that's not necessarily the case. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, it's kind of similar to the situation I find uh, at, with certain fighters at TriStar, and it's not uh, I, not to blame TriStar for that, and uh, it's it may be a question of... There's also a, a variable you have to take into account, is that fighters sometimes may not necessarily in, uh, internalize the lessons that they've uh, received at their gym in the best way possible.
1: Yeah, the best uh, the best TriStar example of that for TriStar is a
0: uh, good old Alex
1: Garcia, who was like totally did not seem to fit the mold ever of what a tri- of what uh the ideal TriStar fighter is like.
0: That and also a certain misinterpretation of what the uh, head coach wants the, his fighters to look like. Mm. Uh, for example, it, it kind of gives. Tries to kind of gives off me a sort of impression where fighters themselves think that Firas Zahabi wants them to look like GSP. He wants them to fight like GSP when, when uh, by all accounts, Firas Zahabi himself is a very open-minded type of coach, who is also, whenever, he, whenever you see his, uh, sparring footage where Firas Zahabi is participating, is an incredibly aggressive striker that utilizes yeah. a lot of power shots. I
1: was just gonna say the same thing. You 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 have this conception of who Faraz is, but look at his fighting style. He's like not a brawler necessarily, but he is a an aggressive, pace pushing fighter. He's nothing like the uh the GSP archetype at all. I think that's a good point that um fighters don't know themselves all that much better than we know them. Um a lot of times, and they almost certainly go to these camps because you know, all they have to go on for a a coach's reputation is what their most famous fighters look like. Hence, all the many, many fighters who went to um, SBG, you know, after Conor (laughs) McGregor's success. Or Jackson Wink. Or Jackson (laughs) Wink. Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen so many people clearly trying to fit into a mold um, that has given success to another fighter out of that camp. And it's not all that clear to determine... Whether that is the coach trying to fit them into their mold, or they think that this is why they've gone to this coach, is to be molded into this kind of great fighter. Uh, But we've certainly seen people go to Jackson Wink and come out with a weird John style. We've seen plenty of people go to SBG and come out their next fight looking like a pale imitation of Conor McGregor, Um, if it's possible to be paler than Conor McGregor already is. (laughs)
0: if it's possible to age worse than conor mcgregor (laughs) in a truly irish fashion (laughs) just aging a dog years that man he's
1: fucking that car i mean yeah (laughs) it's got got a wear on you you know
0: yeah and uh, it's kind of kind of points us to the problem that i mean people in general are kind of bad at uh, evaluating uh, their strong suits and uh, weak points uh-huh. And it kind of translates to fighters. And fighters sometimes, uh, I guess, to summarize, fighters sometimes necessarily not do not necessarily understand the philosophy behind the things they wish to emulate. And yeah. the ph- uh, implementing a philosophy is very different from implementing the specific way in which uh, a, a certain other guy implemented that philosophy. Yes, you don't necessarily have to be uh, like say, for example, let's take uh, let's. Let's say pressure fighters. To be a pressure fighter, you do not necessarily have to be someone like Justin Gaethje. (laughs) I mean, you can be someone like RDA, who is uh, more measured, uh, more careful in his approach, or someone like, I guess, a more advanced example, someone like in boxing like uh, Triple G. You you don't have to necessarily push, uh, drag the pace of the fight up by its ears, by yourself, like Tony Ferguson, for example, does. To be an effective pressure fighter, and yet certain fighters try to do that as opposed to using good fundamentals to kind of and uh, good footwork uh, and all that stuff to be more effective,
1: yeah, yeah. And, and you know, and maybe there are just a bunch of different kinds of pressure fighter. This is the difficulty of trying to make this, um, uh, to make this evaluation like uh, to put it in finite terms is that, um, for all I know, the exact same insecurity might lead uh, well, as close as you know five people can come to having the exact same insecurity. It might lead those five different fighters into totally different directions, different expressions, even if they're trying to replicate the same style. but yeah yeah I've tried I've tried long and hard to think of what the uh, like what is the defining insecurity um, or or personality quirk of a pressure fighter and, and I don't know if there is one. Some pressure fighters uh, resonate. You know, like the the, the 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 gut guess would be like impatience, because clearly if you're uncomfortable waiting around and letting the other person dictate, that's going to prompt you to pressure. But some pressure fighters resonate patience um, and are just extremely considered and methodical and workmanlike in how they execute pressure. So, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: it's. It's exactly the point that I wish to touch upon. In that, some the very simple base uh, I uh, approach, I guess, to value to finding that specific quirk would be: oh, he's a pressure fighter. That means he's aggressive, yeah. and uh, that's not may, may not necessarily be the case, and uh, that may not necessarily translate to real life as well, because no, we no. talked about uh, real how fighters behave in real life. Com- compare and contrast that to to how they behave in the cage or in the ring and uh, some pressure fighters who are incredibly savage fighters are also sweethearts in real life yeah absolutely that's it's it's a a
1: pretty common thing actually that you you see someone who is just a completely brutal fighter and interpersonally they seem as sweet and good-natured as possible i mean you got to keep in mind that like um this is an expression of some, kind of, uh, of, of some kind of deep-seated truth, but these are deep-seated things, and you're putting someone in a, an environment where they can think to themselves, oh, it's okay for me to express it in this context, uh, where it would not be permissible uh, or might express itself in a different way uh, in some other context in life.
0: Yeah, and uh, especially when you compare and contrast MMA with boxing, for example. Mm -hmm. MMA, due to its youth, leads uh, to fighters with uh, certain styles that uh, are, well, let's call a spade a spade. They're way more crude than certain fighters that uh, we saw in boxing. And uh, that's why it seems like like, uh, a fighter's personality should be more obvious in the cage, due to how how much more obvious their fighting style is compared to, to a high-level boxer, for example, but it's still not a sure thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially when you get to fighters who are the cream of the crop, uh, fighters who are pound-for-pound talents, yeah. uh, like, say, Jose Aldo or Khabib Nurmagomedov, George St-Pierre, once again, uh, fighters who pretty much uh, just overwhelming forces of nature. And uh, how do you evaluate them from a psychological standpoint. Well, I guess Georges St-Pierre is a right. very open about why he fought the way uh, he fought. But someone like Jose Aldo, I mean, first you've got the language barrier, obviously, and then, um, I mean, you could point to his background, mm-hmm. uh, having grown up in the favelas and uh, living in abject poverty, may have... His relationship with his father, clearly
1: a very... Uh, influential part of his history. I mean, I, there is a reason that Jose Aldo is. We all call him Jose Aldo, but every single fight he's ever had, he's introduced as Jose Aldo Jr. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a reasoning there that uh, I think I don't know maybe helps to explain some of the, you know how Aldo has a uh, uh, Ryan just wrote that piece. Um, what do you call it? Poking the bear.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was uh, the uh, top number one pick. For mm-hmm. the, our top five uh, greatest MMA fights that we've fin- finished recently, mm-hmm. and, just and that's quick you know, plug. Maybe, maybe,
1: maybe, <laughs> maybe Jose's daddy issues um, help to explain that feeling you get from his fights, where there is sort of a, a hunger
0: roiling underneath. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. Hunger, very poetic. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's also very obvious. I the guy was dirt poor, yeah, <laughs> slept on <in> the streets,
1: <laughs> genuinely hungry. The guy, like, uh, who was it? Hermes um, um, Franca, like, bought him like a, a burrito or something like once a day, and he was like cleaning mats at the gym and everything. But yeah, it's a it's a good question. Like, we if there is such a thing as. Um, if there are such things as style archetypes, and one of those archetypes is the all-terrain fighter, then most of those tend to be all-time greats. These fighters where you get the sense that they they are not limited to one style in the way that the vast majority of fighters are. That they have almost like transcended to a point where they can kind of pick and choose how they want to fight. Which is, again, a very rare thing, even for boxers. Because... Uh, it is such a raw sort of experience being in a fist fight. But uh, yeah. it's interesting to ask, what does this analysis apply to them? Um, I kind of think of it like, I always, I always talk about um, a fighter's prime as being like the crossroads. Like if you, if you picture a graph, um, and starting all the way from the left-hand corner, Slowly climbing up and up and up is experience slash technique, uh, craft, science, however you want to put it. Also self-awareness. Self-awareness for sure. Yeah. All all of these things that that come with time. And then starting way above that on the y-axis, you have another line which is slowly trailing down and down and down. And that line is labeled athleticism. And a fighter's prime is the point at which those two lines intersect. Uh, where they, their athleticism has not started the rapid middle-aged decline, and their experience is still increasing. And I kind of think of these fighters as sort of, um, this, these all-terrain fighters as sort of analogous to that. Where, like, y- you can reach a point of experience where you are sort of able to, like, rationally master your own insecurities, if only for 25 minutes at a time.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and I would also add that um, I've said self-awareness. I think self-awareness is what really separates all-time great candidates and yeah. genuine all-time greats from uh, simply extremely talented and extremely masterful fighters who sort of fell off right as their athleticism waned. Yeah, uh, I
1: mean, especially among pro athletes, right? You, you, if you've ever interviewed a single MMA fighter, you know they are tremendously insecure.
0: Um, and Insecure and also sometimes delusional, just abjectly absolutely. delusional.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Abjectly delusional. And um, a lot of fighters do not take well to criticism uh, of any kind. Like, uh, I, I, I recall, I'm happy to burn him because he, he's just kind of famously a dick. But uh, I, I recall my old co-host, the good Dr. Patrick Wyman, <laughs> uh, used to write... Um, the Dog previews, and in one of them he previewed a Bellator card, I believe, on which Georgie Karakanyan was fighting, and he was perfectly, you know, uh, he was perfectly reasonable. It wasn't even insulting; it was, it was in fact quite complimentary, and he pushed Georgie to win.
0: I mean, in as much as Pat Wyman was able to be complimentary and <laughs> measured. <mentioned. laughs> he's so, he's so <laughs> condescending, isn't he? But, <laughs>
1: It was, it was a perfectly reasonable...
0: Tommy Elliott's uh, evil twin, <laughs> in terms of voice, at least. Yeah, in terms of
1: voice. Yeah, I'm sorry, Tom, but Pat is way hotter. Um, <laughs> I, I disagree. <laughs> I, I mean... The uh, new rift between our two publications.
0: Just putting... Just ramming stakes into the possibility of friendship and cooperation.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, but, um, Pat was yeah, preview discussing a, a Georgie Karakanian fight was perfectly rational, not rational uh, enough to stop Georgie Karakanian physically approaching him at a presser and like threatening him <laughs> because <laughs> uh, because he didn't like what was said about him, and uh, that really sums up a lot of fighters and a lot of people. Again, it's a microcosm uh, of, of 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 all humanity. And self-knowledge is a really rare and hard-won thing. It takes a long time to get there, and I think most people never really do, even people who think they're very self-aware. To go back, sorry, I'm rambling now, but to go back to Leon Edwards, um, I finished out my piece last week sort of talking about that conundrum. Leon Edwards speaks very intelligently and clearly about fighting. He has no qualms addressing something that went wrong in a fight and explaining the thought process that led him there. And yet, he can't seem to change it. Uh, so has he achieved self-knowledge?
0: Or? Sin- yeah, since uh, we're uh, veering way into armchair psychology territory, I feel like I, I, I also have to indulge. I think uh, Leon Edwards exhibits this sort of uh, trait that certain uh, pupils and students have in that they're very open and front about their faults mm-hmm. and failures as students to in order to avoid harsher criticism.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like it's like if uh, I say it first, the bully can't say it to me. That kind of thought mm-hmm. process.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like a cop out, an excuse wow. to not try and mm-hmm. in, and then improve and continue improving. That oh, I know I suck at this thing, and I'm not going to do anything about it. Right.
1: At least I don't ha- have I- to tell me I suck.
0: Yeah, like, I know I suck at this thing, but uh, yeah, I guess I know I've said it. What are you going to do about it? I'm yeah, not going to do like anything. A, it's like, a, I don't know if you
1: have these uh, where you live, but uh, in the U.S. there's a whole uh, there's a whole type of uh, of like middle-aged woman, mostly white, who, uh, who, who says things very proudly, like, I'm a bitch. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it's like, all right. So like you're good with that, you know, or you know, it's it's like by by wearing your self-criticism on your sleeve, you make it you take its power away, but you also take away its the power of that recognition to change you for the better.
0: I mean, I was uh I I, I guess this type of woman is less prevalent in Russia and in Central Asia in general because our countries are just kind of not very nice to women, you know. So, oh, we love women over here. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a question of uh, it's it's all comparative. Comparatively, we're not very nice to women compared to the US, which is somewhat nicer, but also not not quite there yet.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But yeah, very very nice. Aside, <laughs> very, very encouraging. <laughs> but sorry, so
1: to bring us back on track, I, I do think that. Um, I totally agree with you. I think that's a very succinct way of saying it, that that is self-knowledge um, is a sort of thing you can gain through experience as long as you are willing to really honestly engage with the lessons uh, provided by your experience. And that that is probably the thing that separates these all-terrain fighters, is that they really can take an honest accounting of like who they are, why they fight the way they fight, to to understand yourself that is definitely the first step to, uh, to doing things differently.
0: Uh, an interesting um, outlier I would like to point out is Fedor Yemelyenko. Fedor Yimlianenko, how English speakers usually butcher his name.
1: Fedor.
0: <laughs> That's the one
1: where I, I try to say Pyotr. I try to approximate the Russian pronunciation. But with Fedor,
0: I've said Fedor for far too long <laughs> to change yes. how
1: I say it now.
0: Yeah, so Fedor uh uh-huh. Uh fedor uh, you, you could say that he, he doesn't actually you know possess the necessary self uh, tra- traits of self awareness the necessary level of self uh, self awareness to just kind of uh, you know look in the mirror and say come on now <laughs> let's not do this anymore
1: well <laughs> perhaps there there are perhaps there are separate spheres of self awareness that fedor uh, may have learned uh, a great deal about himself as a fighter but not quite you know i don't think it's a linear one track kind of thing
0: no nothing is nothing really is when it comes to this stuff yeah
1: and he still has to be delusional enough to be a fighter in the first place right
0: true i mean uh a delusion is a delusion is a delusion like certain delusions are way more damaging to a fighter's careers but yeah, that actually uh, brings us to a point uh, that I wish to also touch upon. Something that's kind of adjacent to the, the ATG question. Like, certain fighters are just really hard to analyze this way. And just how do you psychoanalyze a fighter like Yual Romero, who is a serial bullshitter? Like, his entire style is just bullshit. It's built on bullshit. He just tricks you. That's all he is. I, I, a trickster. I, I... He is.
1: He is like he is a, an ancient Mesopotamian trickster god. Um, I don't know. It's not. I don't know either. It's, it's not a perfect <laughs> method, but I, I have been fooled and misread so many Yoel Romero fights that uh, I really don't know. Some, sometimes, I mean, who who could have predicted, for example, the way he fought Adesanya? Who could have predicted the way he fought Adesanya based on the way he fought, say, Paulo Costa. That was like such an uncharacteristic in many ways, Yoel Romero performance, um, you know, high output jabs off the back foot combination, counter punching. Um, the hell's going on. I I don't know. Yo Romero is like the, is like a bizarro all-terrain fighter. Yeah. And, Completely that, inscrutable to me.
0: That's an excellent way to put it. A bizarro, uh, bizarro all fighter. <laughs> Dan Albert of the fight site actually wrote uh, a, an evaluation of Yo Romero based on the Israel Desanya fight, which he actually went back and watched because he's a psycho. Uh-huh. Poor and, uh huh, poor And he's kind of, he described him as uh, an anti meta polymorph. Like, uh, if you. <laughs> If you look at the way MMA is set up, like, how do you win MMA fights? You just have to do things. You, if you do lots of things, you win fights. That's pretty much, that's just the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Down to its base, base components. And uh, Joel Romero is, like, inconsistent, but he's not in consistent in that. He's just kind of in, consistently inconsistent is the, the best way to put it, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he kind of prioritizes singular ideas of a fight's dynamic for each fight, for any given fight. And he's kind of a minimalist that way. And yeah. so since you can't pin him down, any uh, adaptation that he, that he brings into the fight is always surprising. And he's yeah. always been consistent with that specifically.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. He, he, um, you cannot accuse Joel Romero of um, not adapting. He he's he's super changeable. In fact, as a fighter, but but you're right. It does seem like there's a like sort of a narrow lane into which he will pour whatever uh, adaptive energy he has for this upcoming fight. And then uh, what happens to the other aspects of his game, the other phases, is is kind of a mystery. Sometimes they just go away, seemingly because he's just intensely focused on this one thing. He's probably like just an incredible phenom at so many things in life <laughs> it's you gotta <laughs> wonder how much that extends in the day-to-day life where like yo romero spends a couple months getting really into painting and then produces a beautiful watercolor and never does it again,
0: <laughs> never does it again. yeah uh, i mean ed um ed Gallo uh had said that uh yo romero kind of fights like uh he kind of approaches fights like a wrestling match, that's, uh, in that I'm going to bring this specific technique against this specific guy and just uh, hit my big move in front of the judges and then I can coast. Or I can just, you know, quote unquote, pin him. And that is, uh, in an MMA context, that naturally means he's going to murder the guy.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And, uh huh. And it's kind of. Um, It should be obvious, because naturally a fighter who spent so many years uh, competing in freestyle wrestling is going to approach an MMA fight kind of similarly uh, based upon his previous experiences, but it's um, it's not immediately obvious because he used to wrestle in a very different way. He used to wrestle in the opposite way. He he was a pace-based wrestler during his career, which is very weird.
1: Yeah, because uh, how how long is a uh, how long is like an Olympic wrestling match? Like nine minutes, something like that.
0: Something like that. It's very short. So so,
1: so Yoel Romero probably uh, could could be very confident that he had nine minutes of intense stamina. I think yeah. in MMA that that particular part of the equation is a lot more difficult for him to navigate because he definitely doesn't have twenty five minutes uh, of intense stamina. Yoel is such an interesting case. He's. There are like a couple of other archetypes you can compare him to. Like he is—he definitely seems to be an example of a fighter who, uh, while tremendously good, in fact, at making spe- opponent-specific adjustments in camp, does not adjust well over the course of a fight. He—he he seems to come in with an idea in mind, and he can hammer that idea really hard if that's what it takes to—to—to to, to bring success, but. Uh, but fighting differently from one round to the next is uh, is obviously very difficult for him.
0: Yeah, I mean, you, you could say that uh, the Robert-Whitaker fight, the second Robert, Robert-Whitaker fight, is a bit of an outlier. But uh, then mm-hmm. again, uh, uh, that uh, uh, the adjustment that he brought into the fight, uh, the, namely spe- fighting from Orthodox for the first few rounds and then switching in order to nail... Uh, Robert Whitaker with that uh, counter sh- counter uh, left hand. But uh, that is also a bit of a strategic adjustment, wasn't it? Uh, in the sense that he kind of... It, it, it's obvious that he thought about it.
1: Yeah, at the if very you think least. about it as he planned to have like a set point where he would switch it on in that fight, it almost feels uh, still like it was something he came in with already in his back pocket. Uh, that, you know, I, I don't know, maybe this is just uh, trying to rationalize the, um, the outlier, but it really felt to me in that fight, specifically because Romero did, like, what he did instead of um, fighting one way and then fighting a different way was to not fight at all and then start fighting. <laughs> so it really felt like he, he that, that in and of itself was a pre-planned sort of switch. He, uh, he intended to turn midway through the fight.
0: Yeah, Yo Romero is kind of uh, a bit of a, an inscrutable character, the one that uh, we can spend the, an, the entire day talking about, one that warrants, I guess, several ep- podcast episodes that may happen sometime in the future.
1: <laughs> yeah, but uh, we could spend the entire day talking about him, or, just a suggestion, we could look at pictures of him.
0: Yeah. You want to look
1: at a couple, couple Romero pics?
0: I mean, that's all you really need to understand who Yoel Romero is (laughs) as a fighter. I'm just
1: (laughs) Just just doing a quick quick Google image search here.
0: (laughs) Just take a look at him. Yeah, Uh, this guy's one of the greatest fighters of all time. But also, uh, an important point, Yoel Romero is also an example of a fighter who had elite attributes, uh, Mm. but uh, a fighter who also leveraged those attributes in an intelligent way, his physicality and his attributes. And uh, it's um, a trope almost at this point that Yo Romero is uh, just pretty much athleted his way through MMA. But mm-hmm. I mean, athleting your way through MMA is al- is a valid is a valid way to fight, but it's also really hard to do provided you do do not uh, well leverage your attributes in an intelligent way, which is exactly what mm-hmm. your Romero did. And that's kind of tied to the point of about um, attributes and fundamentals. Like uh, elite fighters with both attributes and solid fundamentals tend to exhibit different tendencies, preferences, and habits. They may be able to do it all, but uh, still they may have a certain preference, like fighters like Alexis Arguello, Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard, James Toney, etc. The list uh, goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and Sugar Ray Leonard is also as, as uh, a an especially interesting example because he's kind of, uh, sort of a type of fighter that's that has been tugged in different direction directions throughout his entire career. Like he was, mm-hmm. uh, he was a superb boxer, a superb tactician, technician, but also a massive banger and a brawler. That's uh, and sometimes you could see that in his fights where he would he was like, should I box this guy or should I just knock him out? And especially, yeah. an especially illustrative example would be his fight with Tommy Hearns, mm-hmm. where th- through um, throughout the fight he was consistently outboxed, and he was able to find certain moments of success with his while well, purely boxing against Tommy Tommy Hearns. But what won him in the fight was basically just going nuts, <laughs> basically just going ape shit, and knocking yeah. Tommy Hearns the fuck out.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's that's actually, like a, I think, a, a theme you see crop up in a lot of Sugar Ray Leonard's fights. That um, he, he, he usually just seems to reach a point where he decides he has to nuke the other dude. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. if that Does that make him a, a, an all-terrain fighter? A fighter struggling to be all-terrain? Or is it merely that um, he could really do it all, but at the end of the day, there was a kind of fight Sugar Ray Leonard knew he could win? Um. And that was just by
0: being a murderous puncher. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's kind of also an interesting example. The initial question was about uh, also the second segment of the question was uh, fighting against type. Like, Mm. is there even such a thing? Because, uh, I mean, surely we we can provide, we can come up with some examples, but... uh, uh, from recent memory, going off recent memory, someone like let's say Paulo Costa versus Israel Adesanya, or Justin Gaethje versus Habib, mm-hmm. like uh, these two fighters were the reason their route to victory, as outlined by many analysts and many fans, was pretty much to just be too dumb to lose, just yeah. to just press forward and just throw strikes nonstop and uh, wear the other guy out and uh, pretty much just beat him up. And yet what we saw from these two was uh, pretty much the opposite of what we expected for them to, mm-hmm. for them to show.
1: Yeah, I mean uh it it it, it, it se- being too dumb to win seems like it's such a far leap to get from there to being too dumb to lose but uh,
0: sometimes (laughs) sometimes that's all you need
1: (laughs) sometimes you just can't make it you're just not quite the right kind of dumb yeah it's tough i mean fighting against type um is like a very abstract concept because as we've already been over there are a million different ways to express the same fundamental insecurity or flaw or however you want to look at it uh so like was Paul Acosta fighting against type against Israel Adesanya? Did he come into that bout with a plan that didn't really fit him as naturally as he hoped it would? Or was the way he fought Israel Adesanya just a different reflection of the aspect of his personality that drives his usual style?
0: I mean, as right? you... I think it was you who put it right uh, after the fight on Heavy Hands that uh, it was a tiny dick performance from Polo Costa. It was a
1: (laughs) real small dick-ass performance,
0: yes. (laughs) Polo Costa has a tiny dick. Minuscule.
1: (laughs) Smaller than ever after that fight.
0: Uh, I mean, if you saw the photos uh, of Polo Costa after the fight, the man's hairline is atrocious. It, but, it was it was kind of bad before, but I mean, it's I like the s- idea
1: that it's just
0: suddenly receding after that loss. <laughs>
1: yeah, just, just
0: <laughs> hair falling out in entire just batches from stress from the it's gotta, realization.
1: It's got to be the wine allergy. Um, I think. I think. Um, yeah, like, here's the thing. So if we again, I'm going to be very reductive because that's all I can do. But if, you know, Paul, Paul Costa is already just like a little dick-ass individual. You know, he's... His whole thing is like overcompensating for something. I you mean, know, he's
0: he's, he's he, kind of the human... Uh, the human analog of a, a really large SUV
1: yes. someone
0: buys in order to just kind of yeah. hide certain deficiencies. Paul,
1: Paul Acosta is wearing his own body like a massive pickup truck. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know what I mean he he tries so hard to project this like macho-ness I could very easily argue that um, that that is because you know he, he's afraid of something he's afraid of being seen a certain way and that is why he fights the way he typically does like
0: um, that's, right. like he, me, that's why like he that's why he wears a massive cup and punches everyone in the dick yeah <laughs> Like
1: like you said, though, about uh, about Leon Edwards um, sort of hiding himself from criticism by being superficially open to it. It's like Paul Acosta is hiding himself from, you know, being found out as the, the little dick guy that he knows he is in his heart by fighting in the in what he thinks is like the biggest dick way possible. And then you could very easily argue that it's the same root insecurity that was just warped by how it felt to fight Israel Adesanya, that he was like, it, it forced him, he he had for the first time to no feel to how hide. small his own dick was.
0: <laughs> just no place to hide. He was stuck yeah. in the shower room with, exactly. the, with everyone <laughs> else. <laughs> exactly. Everyone else could <laughs> see his <laughs> tiny dick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it, though. Like, um, yeah, you could easily argue that that it's, it's the same. It's an exp- it's two different expressions of the exact same root cause.
0: Uh, same balls, different profile, <laughs> different angle. <laughs> 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 same you banana, were... different hammock. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, t- 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 to the point about uh, different insecurities. I mean, just Justin KG, uh There was, uh, t- um, I mean. Uh, Joe Rogan's podcast is obviously a very uh, a terrible show, but uh, but sometimes you get interesting insights from the guests. And Michael Chandler was uh, a guest once. you are talking about uh, Dave Rubin, right? Uh, I mean, come I, 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 w- w- again? <laughs> <laughs> so, so.
1: <laughs> Sorry, we'll we'll talk about it. next next time I guest on your show. We'll talk about Dave Rubin. I There's sure. so much to get into.
0: Uh, I mean, yeah. Sorry, so you were saying back to it. Yeah, <laughs> Michael Chandler had a guest appearance on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, and he said that Justin Cage reminds uh, him himself. Well, reminds him a bit of himself, like uh, in a certain sense, because Michael Chandler always possessed this sort of insecurity in that he always thought that he uh, can't win the fight without turning the fight into a war, into a brawl. And that's mm-hmm. why he fought the way he fought, by being, you know, a chin bully <laughs> and just mm-hmm. throwing massive bombs constantly nonstop. And uh the compare and contrast that with Polarcaster, Costa fights that way because he thinks thinks it's uh as you put it, the most biggest dick type performance possible to fight yep. this this way. And uh Justin Gagey is just uh, just thinks he's just playing not good enough. And uh Yeah.
1: Yeah, so he's got to fight in the littlest brained way possible. I think, um, you know, Justin Gaethje is, once again, these are all connected, so I'm going to keep referencing things we've already talked about. Um, I critique Leon Edwards for displaying the illusion of self-knowledge without actually taking the lessons that knowledge should have provided him into account. Justin Gaethje, I think, is a, a great example of someone who seems to have sort of turned that corner uh, where Justin Gaethje was always brutally honest um, about his own limitations very willing to admit his faults um, shockingly open to the idea that he would someday lose before it happened and how he would lose Um, and uh, and despite all of that Justin Gaethje did seem to reach a point where he became uh, self-aware enough to make a dramatic style change um, so there is hope for Leon Edwards to, to actually realize like, oh, I've been looking in the mirror all this time without actually uh, internalizing any of the lessons that are being shown to me. It does happen, but it's rare. I mean, I'm still impressed with the fact that Justin Gaethje uh, turned his style around as, as dramatically as he did.
0: There are only two people on staff at the fight site who t- seem to not be as critical of uh justin gagey style change <laughs> uh, because ed sriram and ryan have uh, turned it into a meme basically to bully me to, to just just kind of think uh, trevor whitman trevor whitman turned gagey make made gagey worse by making uh-huh. him fight off the back foot uh-huh. <laughs> it's just i'm so tired of it Oh,
1: God. They're just like a little gang of crows, aren't they, those kids? Jesus Christ.
0: Uh, Especially the Reddit crew. I mean, the guys who started with the Reddit crew on Reddit on RMMA originally. Disgusting.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, there are two sides to everything. You could certainly say um, that just, I mean, you know, it's just you don't have to say it's good or bad. Like, Justin Gaethje, it's, it's not wrong to say Justin Gaethje probably lost some things. In and, making the transition, but he certainly gained a lot as well.
0: I mean, conceptually, fighting off the back foot is not really a bad thing. It's it's uh, it's about it's all about how no. you employ that style. Yeah, um, and if
1: I was going to have one MMA coach teach me to fight off the back foot, it would probably be Trevor Whitman.
0: I mean, like, these guys are also out there saying that uh, Trevor Whitman has made Usman actively worse uh-huh. because he's going on the back foot and knocking people, people out as opposed to just oh, boringly man. grinding them out. But I mean, that's just that's just uh, the fight side boys for you. Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm willing to entertain the idea that again that Usman has lost some things in a transformation. I still can't help but be very impressed whenever a fighter radically transforms anything.
0: I mean, it's incredibly hard. uh,
1: It's just it's it's incredibly hard. Oh my god,
0: it's it's so
1: hard. It it being so tied to who you are as a person. It's like trying as difficult as changing your personality.
0: It's like trying to quit smoking, in the sense. Almost. sure
1: in terms Absolutely. of difficulty. yeah everyone's addicted to themselves and it's very difficult to to cut that addiction but um i also think you know with with guys like usman and with gaethje there's also a l- learning curve when you're trying to do something new how many times have we seen fighters like move to a new camp or make some kind of dramatic style shift and really not look very comfortable with it for the first several fights and, and then suddenly turn a corner.
0: I mean, it's also kind of the problem with MMA in general, in that uh, with MMA, the uh, fighters' careers are much shorter than mm-hmm. in other more well-established sports. And as such, a single loss may may well be the defining point, uh, the turning point in your career where you no longer will be able to yeah. fight the same way. But, I mean, it could
1: literally be the death of you.
0: Yeah. And you know? uh, I... Continue to maintain that Usman and Gage are still unfinished products in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because there's still just a lot of room to gr- to grow for both of them. For Gaiji, it's tying his previous pressure with his newfound eye for the counter, which he always had, but now demonstrated it uh, in a more nuanced way. And mm-hmm. his newfound ability to fight off the back foot. And the same with Usman, his uh, newfound... Uh, uh, Ability and desire to utilize that ability to knock people the, to knock people the fuck out in a, in a dazzling fashion, in a very mm-hmm. impressive fashion. So, yeah, I uh, totally
1: agree. I mean, I think everyone is always an unfinished product, right? Yeah, e- and especially fighters who are in the midst of a
0: of a, of a radical shift. I mean, Dustin Poirier is a an excellent mm-hmm. example of someone who's mm-hmm. un, who underwent, uh, well. You may not call it uh, a radical shot, but more like a refinement, in a yes. sense. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, Dustin Poirier. Pulley, Dustin Poirier's entire game is kind of like that of uh, another edu- uh, an educated brawler. His mm-hmm. kind of his whole game is about f- fighting his way out of terrible spots, and uh, it's kind of like his style is sort of built around taking an an inch and turning it into a mile and just unloading on you whenever he gets the chance.
1: Yeah, with Poirier, the big change seemed to be just getting, finally getting comfortable being in the bad spots that he always wound up in. Um, and it's funny how like, the counter-punching he's now so consistently good with is just an outgrowth of having to be comfortable in bad spots.
0: Yeah, and uh, like, compare and contrast his performance against Conor the second time around with the first one, where... Uh, yeah. In the first fight, he was just plain uncomfortable under fire and just got sort of melted. And then the second fight, just perfectly fine with taking punches and rolling with them. He was more
1: comfortable under fire than I would have thought was good. I would have been like, no, in fact, I was. I said, this is the wrong way to fight. Why the fuck are you going to put your back to the cage to fight Conor McGregor and stay (laughs) on the end of his reach? But it is the fact that Dustin Poirier can do that now. Uh, which, which is, I think, at the root of his 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 slow uh, refinement,
0: as you said. Yeah, and uh, uh, I think we're we're kind of exhausting <laughs> our examples right now. But uh, yeah, so I only know
1: like I only really know like three or four fighters.
0: <laughs> yeah, same. I don't actually watch fights. It's, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a I secret. I've watched of mine. in years. Yeah, uh, not, I just watch highlights. Like
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need: highlights and stats. You
0: know. <laughs> I mean, uh, I guess to go back to the idea of uh, fighters with attributes exhibiting certain habits of leveraging their physicality in an intelligent way, like uh, someone like George Foreman is frequently... Like, it's, uh, it's kind of a trope to say that, once again, uh, athleting someone is cheating. But uh, take someone like George Foreman, and you think that the man is a bully, is a bully and he's frequently portrayed as a bully in uh, casual like, uh, fight fan media... Mm-hmm. And uh, if you watch his fights against someone like Ron Lyle he's anything but a... Oh my god he, that like George Foreman got face planted by Ron Lyle
1: Yeah he doesn't cause... he he doesn't crumble the way you expect your typical bully to do He and he
0: does like to bully people but yeah that's not how he is and uh, it's kind of evident in how he behaves himself out of the ring right now mm-hmm. <laughs> He wouldn't I mean, you could, I guess you could call him a reformed bully, but uh, was he a bully in the first place anyway? I
1: mean, I think more of one. Foreman's a really interesting case because, uh, like Gaichi Usman, um, he's one of those fighters who had like two, I mean, more than most fighters, two really distinct periods of his career.
0: Yeah, he's kind Uh, of had two careers.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. He had a long retirement and then came back and had a remarkably successful second run as a middle-aged man. Um, but, uh, there's also something interesting to be seen there in the influence coaches, uh, have on their fighters, because, uh, I think his trainer in the early stages was Dick Sadler.
0: Yeah, it was, uh, uh, I think it was Sandy Sadler, no?
1: He worked with Sandy Sadler, and I think Dick Sadler is a a relative of, um, Dick Sadler is some kind of relative of Sandy Sadler. I don't know Dick if Dick Sadler, Sandy
0: what. Sadler, uh, Sonny Liston, and uh, Archie Moore. Yeah, Sonny
1: Liston was a longtime training partner, which is just incredible. I love hearing George Foreman talk about training with Sonny. And but um, he, he took something away from those people that was different from the fighter he would become later in his career when his trainer was Archie Moore. And, um, you know, you could see a Sandy Sadler look on George Foreman in the young Foreman run. Yeah. He was very handsy. He would do a lot of, like, long clinches, reaching out, trapping your hand, Just
0: sort of smothering you, shoving you yeah. around, cutting your very escape f- routes
1: off. Physically imposing, just constantly manipulating your space. And then he was a much more defense first uh, fighter in the second phase of his career, which is, again, his, his expression of it was very different, very unique to him, but that's a lot more like Archie Moore, who was uh, a fighter who would often get hit, learn to stop getting hit, and then punish you for continuing to try to hit him. He was a classic counter-puncher.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of... Uh, uh, it uh, illustrates the danger of uh, kind of falling into this uh, into this... Rabbit hole of armchair psychology, just yeah. sort of reducing fighters to a meme, or yeah. like letting your personal impression of a fighter affect your final analysis and evaluation.
1: Which like, definitely
0: happens. Yeah, there's like heaps of examples of like hack frauds doing that for money on and clouds on YouTube. Someone like I don't know, someone like Mind Smash doing like body body language analysis and predicting oh fights based based on body I, body language. <laughs>
1: I have watched some of those videos. They're like they tend to be like two minutes, and I'm like, okay, there's something interesting going on here. And then three minutes later, my eyes are glazing over. I don't know what's happening.
0: <laughs> it's just this terrible, yeah. terrible, <laughs> eye burning editing. And then the <laughs> the subject of the video is like analyzing Conor McGregor's boner on the face-offs. <laughs> just now, you'll note it
1: was only semi-hard at the beginning of the weigh-in. Yeah, but you know, maybe two men. This is just uh, this is just one hack fraud <laughs> Shield, shielding himself from a, from a, from the criticism by by laughing at another hack fraud.
0: I mean, in a sense, we're all hack frauds here. Because, we are uh, because yes. it's kind of and the fight analysis is kind of uh, you can't quantify it like something something uh, like a, like no. a ball sport where just there's a stat for everything and you can calculate everything and construct a model that will definitely show how a fighter would fare somewhere down yeah. the line due to sample size and just uh, the sheer fact that the fight can end at any given moment and you don't have fights lasting exactly fifteen minutes and uh, yeah. not a minute more or less. Too many damn variables. <clears throat> too many Too many win conditions.
1: Uh, no one in MMA is like good enough to really be relied on that much. Uh, and in large part, it's just because the sport is just too damn dangerous. MMA is noisy.
0: It's just noise. It is noisy. Yeah, it's noise everywhere. Static. Yeah, and uh, that's I guess that's us utilizing that uh, Leon Edwards defense of saying that uh, you can't know anything. You just you can't know anything for sure. Analysts are also driven by insecurity. Yes, everyone is afraid of admitting are. to be
1: wrong. That is, But that is what it comes back to, right? That is why this is a a treacherous but genuinely useful way of looking at fights is that understanding fights is as useful but also as difficult as understanding yourself because it's the same shit. Um, It is just an expression of personality, of temperament, uh, all the various things that make you who you are. Um, And and also knowing, knowing, I think, that you're always going to be blinkered in one way or another, no matter how self-aware and rational you think you are. There are things that you don't know them because you don't know what you don't know.
0: Um, I mean, you could also argue that uh, you're just one of psychoanalyzed fighters because you're a wuss. (laughs)
1: Yeah, to make, me, to make me feel good about myself, absolutely.
0: You think your athleticism is cheating because you're just scared of big jacked guys.
1: Yeah, you know who, you yeah. know who has a tiny dick? Paulo Costa, he said a little dickedly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's actually you uh, who's cheating. You possess an unfair advantage of a big jacked guys because you can make fun of their tiny dicks on your podcast for being tiny dick bullies.
1: <laughs> Analysis is cheating, yes. 100%.
0: being able to construct coherent sentences multiple coherent (laughs) sentences into paragraphs is is cheating no fighter can do that (laughs) I mean yeah it is a real little dick profession isn't it really pathetic
1: when you think about it
0: god I hate myself so much (laughs) (laughs) uh
1: huh but yeah that's uh you know, it's it's an endlessly interesting topic, um, which is why it comes up so often when I talk about fights. It's like, it's impossible to fully understand how personality inf- influences fighting, but it feels like nothing gives you um, closer to like a true, clear glimpse of how fighting works than this kind of lens.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, uh, trying to be 100% objective 100% uh, technical in your analysis and your evaluation mm-hmm. of fighters is just impossible and mm-hmm. uh, most importantly you also you're also missing out on an important variable that is going to affect every fight and every fighter throughout their entire career. I mean, then mm-hmm. again, you could also argue that it's kind of impossible to predict as well because, um, for example, let's say you can't predict that the fighter is going to have a horrific lapse in judgment in the most important fight of their career. I mean, you could, I suppose, uh, in retrospect, kind of logically come to that conclusion that, yeah, it makes mm-hmm. sense. Just there's a lot of pressure. It's, uh, a championship fi- fight is uh, a tremendous amount of pressure on your psyche. It's just incredibly hard. Uh, it's uh, something you have to prepare yourself very thoroughly for, but then again, if in all the previous fights the prospect and the contender was uh, showing consistent growth and uh, consistent mm-hmm. skillful fighting and improvement how would you how could you say that he's going to shit the bat horrifically coming yeah, exactly. into the next fight
1: you You can use a big sample size to 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 keep yourself aware that. People do shit the bed in these circumstances. Um, but calling exactly when it's going to happen, in my experience, nigh impossible.
0: It's uh, it's kind of like trying to call when the person is going to fall off a cliff athletically or when mm-hmm. a person's chin is going to go. You can kind of sort of get a feel for it, especially if the guy is kind of uh, – especially if the fighter in question is a bit of a brawler or a chin bully or – sure. S- s- Fights in a way that would contribute itself to, uh, well, athletic decline, faster athletic decline. But then again, there are some freaks. There are some genuine freaks who still maintain the durability well into their middle age. And
1: it all it all really comes back to athleticism being cheating, doesn't
0: it? <laughs> I mean, you know, they uh, just
1: you can't with these goddamn athletes in the sport. You just can't come up with any set rules. That a normal person is supposed to conform to they're constantly breaking those guidelines
0: i mean that's kind of the uh, that's the crux of high level competition always in any sport just uh, being athletic is kind of a prerequisite anyway and to be an all-time great in any sport you have to combine being incredibly athletic with being very self aware so it's kind of yeah. though self aware athletes are the biggest cheaters is uh, the, the takeaway here <laughs>
1: 100% yep
0: yeah, I suppose to uh, to come to a conclusion, uh to kind of summarise all that uh, all that we've uh, all the points that we were able to hit upon. Uh Do you think we were able to answer the question? <laughs> it was a really long and rambly <laughs> affair, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, well let's let's revisit the question, I guess. I'll reread it for you from, from Smash. How much does a person's personality affect their fighting style? And are there any clear examples of someone fighting entirely against who they are? Um to answer the first part, how much does a person's personality affect their fighting style? I would say Um a lot, but always to an unknown degree. <laughs> <laughs> I yes. would say uh, altered by self-awareness, um, time spent gaining that self-awareness, and of course altered by technique and skill, which as much as athleticism is cheating, do really matter. Um, you know, being able to sort of break instinct by by f- forcing yourself into a system of techniques really does change the equation. So. Um, I would say the root of a person's fighting style is entirely their personality, but the extent to which it affects it, um, or rather the ways in which their personality affects their style,
0: is very mutable. Uh, I would um, I would uh, co-sign on that, and uh, I would uh, the way I would phrase it, I suppose, is that uh well first of all <laughs> how much uh, a person's personality affect their fighting style depends on the personality first of all uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, it also depends on what what uh on the coaching situation as well so
1: mm-hmm.
0: two important variables and also uh fundamentals are fundamentals for everyone they're just they're just you can't avoid learning fundamentals you can't just skip them and uh the personality will show itself in how a fighter employs those fundamentals and those skills they've learned during the course of their preparation.
1: Yeah, there still are a set of correct ways to do one given technique, but how you employ those in a bigger picture is very much up to who you are.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's kind of like, I mean, I would hate to refer to Bruce Lee, because, I mean, it's fucking Bruce Lee, but also he was kind of right. He kind of understood how fighting works on a conceptual level, in a mm-hmm. sense, in that uh, just uh, fighting is kind of like an expression of yourself in a physical way, mm-hmm. and it's it's always going to be true for everyone. Uh, so, there's your non-committal, no, non-definitive answer. Just it depends. <laughs> there is
1: there just is no definitive answer, but but you get a sense for why the. Answer is undefinable, I think, through a discussion like this, which I very much enjoyed. And thank you again for uh, for asking me to join you for this.
0: Yeah, just, this is Connor just uh, letting himself out by himself.
1: Oh, yeah. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> you were the one who said you were coming to a conclusion. I thought I would, you know, sort of hold your hand, guide
0: you there. <laughs> I, mean, I don't need help. I, I'm actually a very experienced podcaster now. I don't need the your help, s- old man. The, s- the sequel <laughs> to
1: this episode. Why does two men think he doesn't need Connor's help?
0: Uh, I, I, I mean, daddy issues. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> what, what else? <laughs> it's,
1: it's, it's really, it's just always daddy issues. <laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. No, this was. Uh, I, I think. I think this was a pretty, you know. Interesting and illuminating discussion. Discussions like that, even if you don't reach a concrete conclusion or just kind of uh, uh, a takeaway, a really specific takeaway, it's still worthwhile to discuss these these things from multiple angles to just mm-hmm. to just kind of gain a deeper understanding of it. You are completely. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm
1: happy enough to say that there just is no single concrete way to answer a question like this, and and that is the answer. It's you you have to just ask a bunch of questions to understand the
0: the real personalities in fighting styles were the friends we made along the way wow yeah it's uh, it's all about the journey not the, <laughs> not the re- end destination <laughs> just
1: speaking of destinations are we done or
0: <laughs> no i'm just good <laughs> no no i'm gonna i want to bully you some more i also want to make another joke <laughs> can i say
1: actually on the subject of, of bullying um and the, the, the rivalry between our uh, our publications, our, our podcasts, our whatever the hell our two things are. I, I like to think that Smash, whom I also interact with uh, on a fairly regular basis on Twitter, I like to think that he posed this question to you because he's sick of hearing me talk about it. Because I'm hmm. constantly talking about it. Hmm. And that you, <laughs> I have, undermined, you know, your sort of little fan base from the inside by just sort of worming my way in. That there's only one perspective you get to have so on how personality affects fighting. So you're and kind it's of the like, name is Connor.
0: So you're kind of like a you know uh, a deadbeat dad who sometimes shows up with a uh, with presence just kind of trick yeah. trick trick the sons into thinking you still care. <laughs> That's what <Yeah>. it is. There's
1: <laughs> one of one of the two ways in which I am a lot like a deadbeat dad.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, why not? Uh, here's uh, the other, the other being all the women I've impregnated. Um, <laughs> let's pull one out for all the muck freaking personalities we muck freaking <laughs> lost along the way, and all the dead big I, dads as well.
1: If you think about it, I've produced a lot of potentially great fighters with tremendously powerful daddy issues.
0: Uh, I think they're all going to go in the back foot and lose because fighting off the back foot <laughs> is obviously the, the inferior way to fight. they've
1: inherited my little dick (laughs) (laughs) no no my son yeah
0: yeah and on that note (laughs) we are finished (laughs) Connor has a tiny dick there you have it there's there's proof there's definitive proof Uh. (laughs) (laughs) all right yeah all right enough arsing around I think I think that's enough of that thank you thank you for actually you know responding to my DMs because I was kind of trembling in my boots talking to the so sort of waiting for the Senpai to notice me. Just oh God, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> no it's not. A, none of that. No point. I wasn't. No I wasn't. Good. Uh,
1: and thank you for understanding that I I mean, you should honestly feel honored. I get to DMs so infrequently. Uh there are like it was it was a it was pure chance that I looked at my message requests at all because I, uh, I have like 17 unanswered message requests just sitting in there. I'm the type of person who's every single device I, ha- I own just littered with uh, unread notifications. So,
0: I mean, I get the same because I also have the Discord questions to answer every day, mm-hmm. just kind of 24 seven. And sometimes you get, a, there was also, there was this time when I, I've got asked like uh, by an actual paying Discord patron like, mm-hmm. what is object permanence? Can you explain it to me? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I have to work with. Uh, well, all, all you have to do is
1: to adopt my uh, bulletproof philosophy, which is fuck the fans. No. They don't deserve anything. They're not entitled to anything. It doesn't matter if they give you money. Fuck them. You just do what you want.
0: I mean, that's, that's what to... that's already what I do. You just yeah. uh, you do not understand web 3.0. the, the the whole thing of Web 3.0 is to respond to your fans and tell them to fuck off to their face. <laughs> yes. that's what you should do. That's how you yeah. succeed in, this, in these market conditions nowadays. yeah anyway, that's your cue to sign uh, to our discord uh, for five dollars per month. If you want to hear me say if you want me to tell you to fuck off personally, just pay us, give us money. We' always just happy
1: experienced to. it. It's really fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's your glowing recommendation from Connor. Of, you definitely
1: uh, want this guy to insult you.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you for coming once again. This was uh, an interesting discussion, and uh, looking forward to repeat appearances maybe if you're... I would love to. I had a great time. So uh, this has been Tengredome episode 14, if, in case you already forgot. Uh, This has been me, Iggy, your host, and uh, Connor of uh, Heavy Hands. Cheers.